Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson. I'm an assistant professor of pastoral ministry and author in residence at Midwestern Seminary. Christ calls believers his brothers, and this promise of spiritual adoption is reflected throughout the scriptures. When faced with shame and regret, however, it can be difficult to imagine fitting into the family portrait of a holy God. In his new book, He Is Not Ashamed, Eric Raymond examines several stories of flawed people in the Bible to show that Jesus's heart is bent toward, not repelled by, those who are marginalized, feel far from God, or struggle with sin. Examining God's abounding love for undeserving people, Raymond helps readers embrace their place in Christ's beloved family. And here to talk about He Is Not Ashamed, the staggering love of Christ for his people is the author, Pastor Eric Raymond. Eric, how are you, brother? Doing well, Jared. Good to talk with you. I think this is maybe your second or third time on the podcast. Uh, we're grateful to have a you know a few recurring guests, few recurring voices we like to hear from. So I'm happy to talk with you. How are things in uh, in Boston right now? Is it cold? Cold. Yeah, mid-40s, kind of like oh. rainy and just... You know, not too bad. It's been unseasonably warm, though. It's nice. Very yeah. nice. I think it's actually warmer there than it is here in Kansas City, maybe. We're, yeah. in, the, we're in the 30s. Well, brother, um, I was happy to endorse this book. It was timely for me. Well, I, I think the subject itself is timely always. He is not ashamed. Drawing from Hebrews 2.11, right? For he is not ashamed to call them his brothers. Why this book? What was sort of the, the motivation or the impetus behind putting this idea onto paper. Yeah. So a couple of ways um, the Lord impressed this upon me. One, I would say all the way back to my conversion, right? So I'm thinking back, goodness, 25 years ago now, I, I would say that, like, I remember the waking up the next day after I became a Christian and just like, it's like a dream. Like, did that really happen? Is, is God really accepting me to be part of his family? And it, even from that first day, it was just like, it was staggering. It blew me away. And I, I mean, I didn't grow up in going to church. And so it was not like, it felt like I was jumping over major hurdles to become part of God's family. It's like, that was out of left field. And so it had, it had been the recurring uh, meditation that I can't believe that he's not ashamed to have me be part of his family. So just my own personal experience. Second to that would be preaching God's word as a pastor and um, encountering some of the stories that are reflected in the genealogies in the New Testament and then just preaching through Genesis and seeing the way the Lord would use those stories in people's lives as they kind of, I don't know, size themselves up in the mirror looking at those people and think, you know, this person is not entirely unlike me. Uh, they got some baggage, they have some issues, and look at the way that God treats them I and mean, even writes them into the, 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 the story. So I think just seeing people's reactions and interacting, you know, pastoring people and seeing how compelling the story of Christ is, you know, not only in the, his birth, but in his, his death and his resurrection and subsequent drawing of us to be part of his family. I think I think that is something I just wanted to spend some time on, um, not just a one off, but like kind of sailing a bit in the waves and just letting the water wash over you of the grace of God in Christ. 
Yeah, you know, it's a very, you know, as you mentioned, just sort of pastoring the flock and and part of the the motivation or the inspiration coming from that experience. Mm-hmm. It's a very pastoral approach because you get it from both those who were raised in the church, I think, reading through this again, skimming through this again recently in, in preparation to record with you. I was reminded of, of, of just how both those who grow up in the church and those who do not have sort of mirror struggles in this regard, right? So often we hear from those who grew up in the church, they have, you know, I guess it depends on 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 their church experience, but so many of my generation with kind of a discipleship that's based on performance and production where we never quite feel good enough. We're only as good as what we've done for God lately. But yeah. then we hear so often from those who were converted and 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 didn't grow up in church were converted from you know from the world so to speak who often feel like gosh god couldn't love someone like me god couldn't accept someone like me and so it's such a almost a universal thing this idea of just shame the idea of not of not measuring up talk about the the pastoral quality of it yeah i think just and it even changes i think to your point what you're saying um you see this in in pastoral ministry is people can go through different seasons of life where they might feel that that God could never accept them because of situation, something could happen to them or they could have done something. Um, and then on the other side, it's this, like the merit, like even, you know, it's a new year, you're reading your Bible, you're doing a billion things, you're busy and you feel like you're something. And then, you know, middle of March rolls around and you feel like you're nothing. Uh, so it's just, it changes just based on experience and seasons of life. So I think for me, uh, there was uh, the, the the first chapter in the book, the um, God's not ashamed of those with embarrassing stories. This is where it really kind of came to the fore. It was preaching through Genesis and getting to the section um, where with Lot with his daughters. And I would say I was probably like Thursday afternoon, might even been Friday morning. I'm trying to find a Christ connection. How am I going to preach this passage and exalt Christ? And like what facet of the gospel is in view here? And I was struggling with it because it's like, you know, it's a horrible scene with Lot and his daughters in the cave, and you know, and, yeah. and then just seeing, you know, you know, what what nations end up coming out of that horrible situation, obviously with the Moabites and then Ruth coming from there and then David and obviously written into the genealogy very intentionally uh, in the New Testament. So I come to, you know, from the pastoral side, I, I preach the passage and you can just see it like. I mean, I gave a warning, like this passage, you know, parental advisory type thing. Uh, <laughs> I was careful in going through it. But when I got to the, the Christ connection and making the point that, um, do you, you know, do you have a, a story that's embarrassing and shameful, um, something that you wouldn't want to talk about, you would never want to mention, you know, you, something you did or something someone did to you. And you think God can't use you or that for his glory and for your good and showing that this is the type of story that jesus walks out of he walks out of this type of cave into the emergence of of life and he says you know these are the types of people i not only came for sinners but i came from sinners look at my genealogy i was so surprised like these kind of like buttoned up folks come to me and like you know let me tell you how that spoke to me in my past and uh, the way that was so encouraging to me that jesus can can not only heal me but also he can use that 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 wasn't just some something that happened that was random and pointless it's actually purposeful and god is gonna he's gonna take those those horrible things and he's gonna use them for his glory and he can actually heal those wounds as well yeah to me that's 
that's the stuff that we need to be pressing the bomb of the gospel into those crevices there where people are hiding. That's so good. That's so good. I, I mean, to your point, this isn't just, you know, things that we go searching for and they're, you know, utterly hidden. The Lord really seems to be emphasizing, you mentioned the genealogy. I, I you know, preached Matthew's genealogy on Christmas Day at our church. And the way Matthew is just, so, you know, so intentionally yeah. inserts those women's names in there, Ruth and and Tamar and Rahab and the wife of Uriah, you know, it's like he's he's emphasizing he could have picked any four women, which would, you know, in and of itself been, you know, innovative to uh, you know put women's names in there. And he, but he could have picked any examples, but he picks those. It's almost like, you know, the gospel is for such as these and Christ, as you said, comes not just for sinners, but but from sinners as well. Um, to that point, there's um, one of your chapters is about um, how God is not ashamed of those who opposed him. And you talk about Saul, Paul, in, in that chapter. This thing that's always intrigued me, you talk about it a little bit in the chapter. I wonder if you could kind of tease it out. What would the dynamics be, you know, post-conversion, this fellow now coming to be an apostle with authority over those he was previously persecuting. Talk about, gosh, you know, the, the nitty gritty of that, how the gospel has to be the key to unlock that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, think about the, the guy in Damascus is Ananias, right? He's, he's hanging out there and, and he gets the message to, to take, to take Saul. And he, he does. I mean, like the honesty he's like, this is the guy that we know, we know all about this guy, you know, uh, <laughs> right. I don't know if this, you know, I'm not questioning uh, revelation here, but um, this is something we, I just want to make sure I'm clear on. Uh, yeah. It's, it's remarkable because, you know, Saul is going to Damascus. He thinks he's going to arrest Christians and then on his way to Damascus, he, he gets arrested himself. So it's the picture of the wolf is suddenly put in charge of the sheep pen. And I mean, what a, what a definition and explanation of sovereignty of God and the power of regeneration that he's going to take this guy and make him new. And, and the guy was, I mean, you know, in my imagination, I got, I got Saul with blood under his fingernails, you know, just a raspy voice from threatening people. And now he can't even see. And he's being led about by the arm you know, just completely broken down and he's wanting to preach Christ and he's standing up. The one who formerly condemned Christian is now Christians are now refuting Christians. I, I think it just had to be just a walking billboard of the gospel, the types of people that God goes after. I mean, he, he saved Saul of Tarsus, uh, the one who's standing by when Stephen is being martyred. And, and that doesn't escape Saul, of course, I mean, he, he reflects on that even when he's going and he's standing up before the Jews to defend the gospel himself. And he's continuing to say, like, look at me, look who I was. He's like, I was just like you, you, you Jews who hate me right now. I was just like you, but I met Jesus, you know, and, and, and he brought me into his family. So, yeah, I think it's just a fresh reminder, Jared, to to think about the reality that this is these are the type of people that God saves. And he brings and puts them in the church, not as second class Christians but as trophies of his grace and that we should be praying for, longing for and pursuing these types of people, the people that are far from God, even the people that are opposed from God. There's so much in this book. I mean, it's not written in terms of, you know, anything's particularly timely or trying to hit any kind of pop, you know, cultural, political or anything, but I just kept finding so many 
connections or subversions or even corrections to the way we approach things like well right now it's it's not very common to love our enemies it's it it, it or it's, it doesn't seem as though it is you know we we despise our enemies we are constantly fighting our enemies yeah. and that chapter alone to speak to what you just said to to be you know how often are we praying for the conversion of them and and if they were to be converted i mean it's it's kind of a gut check you know for honesty is if the lord would save them would i resent that would i you know resent their being brought into the family on on a similar note now is not a great time to find the idea of weakness favorable and yet in your chapter about how the lord is not ashamed of those who are weak um you tease out paul's phraseology of boasting in weakness i've always been intrigued by that concept i've written about a little bit myself Um, i wonder if you could tease that out for us what does it mean to boast in weakness yeah it's it's fascinating right in second corinthians with paul's using that to to show the great apostle paul is showing his weakness and you know whatever whatever that specific trial that he was facing uh, certainly had some some physical and some spiritual aspect to it. So I tried to focus on those two in the book, and I, was, I think it's the longest chapter. I've seen, I see a couple areas just pastoring again, thinking about this. We have people that are afflicted physically. It, it could be related to old age. It could be some type of debilitating disease or sickness that they have, or it could just be a season. And the the level of of guilt and almost feeling like I, I'm not able to be used in Christ's church like a you know like somebody else that is is well or young or vibrant or doesn't have the afflictions that I have is just something that I think Christians unnecessarily carry instead of having the category of seeing first of all that Jesus is not ashamed he's he's felt he's well aware of your trials that you're facing he ordains them for purposes but then also like you it's okay in the midst of this to instead of having the category of saying I am I'm off the shelf, I'm off the team, I'm not playing, I'm on the sidelines, to actually say I'm weak, and but you're strong, and you're sufficient, and you want to use me, and then thinking through what that looks like in your particular context and given your circumstances. Uh, so there's kind of the physical side, you know, how does somebody with chronic pain boast in their weakness and be useful in the ministry of the kingdom? I mean, you know, part of it is is acknowledging the reality of it, and the other part is, is realizing you're not walking in your own strength Anyways, uh, then the other side, I think, would just be like spiritual temptations where people are feeling a sense of weakness that we have, whether we're, um, you know, besetting sins or spiritual temptations that we that we have and feeling a sense we're not where we need to be. And then again, you you know how it is, like, I'm sure as a dad, you know, raising your daughters, uh, you're like, oh, you know, we need to get back on family devotions and doing this. And, and then you don't do it and then you don't do it again. And you don't do it again. And you realize, like. If I don't do this, I'm never going to do it. Same thing with prayer, Bible reading, any of these things. And so you're just going to sit and say, I'm weak and I'm, I'm not even on the team. I can't do anything because I'm not spiritually strong like this guy or that guy. And then God can't use me rather than actually say, you know what? I'm weak. And that's when I actually need to cry out for mercy. And when God gets the cry for mercy, he's not saying, oh, you, a weak guy that needs mercy. I don't need you. I need the strong. That's not the whole picture. The picture is now you finally got the point. Now you're ready to pass this grade. You've been staying back every single year because you are boasting in your strength. And now you actually realize you're spiritually weak or physically weak. And I'm not ashamed of you. I actually want to use you. 
Mm. I just think that's a foreign foreign concept to people, especially in in the West. It is, and the very idea that the embrace of the gospel is is predicated on or prefaced by our ability to to own up to that, to confess our our need. Right. I mean, what we bring to Christ mm-hmm. is is basically our need. We, yeah. you know, our our emptiness, our spiritual poverty, and it is so antithetical. I think just to human nature. You know, we we want to believe we have what it takes, and and we're ashamed of what we know is true. Therefore, it boggles our mind that Christ would not be ashamed of us in that regard. You know. Yeah, I mean, like the celebrity Christian Instagram culture is not helping that either. You know. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> That's a whole other subject. <laughs> well, maybe it relates to, I wanted to ask you about, he's not ashamed of those who are overlooked. And I, I'm always touched by Christ welcoming the children, you know, do not forbid them for such is the kingdom of God. It's not the only passage you bring to light in that chapter, but talk a little bit about, about that. What does Christ's welcoming of the children have to do with those who are overlooked or feel overlooked? I don't think it's a Jewish impulse. I think it's more of a Roman impulse that filters into the Jewish culture at the time. But you you just see, by the way, even the disciples are trying to like shush the kids, push the kids away. <laughs> you know, time to go to children's church or something. Just get get away. <laughs> right. We're doing. We're dealing with with Jesus now, and he's just uh, he'll have none of it. You know, he's just like bring them to me. He validates the kids. And he like, I mean, just the thought of like embracing them and holding them and blessing them and affirming them. It's just that would have been a a speed bump for, for anybody reading it in that time. Like, how, who's this? Why is he doing this? This is he values the kids. Uh, it's just it's amazing. I mean, depending on where you are in the country, kids uh, looked at different ways. I mean. You know, obviously, you know, shuffling them off to to various activities, ordering your life around them or not having kids or, you know, abortion culture, all these things like it plays today. You know, who who does Jesus look at? And he he loves children. Just seeing the way that the gospel uh, authors dignify children and demonstrate Jesus's love for them, I think, just reminds us that he's not ashamed of the, the weakest and the most vulnerable and those they're valuable members of society. Um, in addition to the women and the, and the handicapped and the rest of that chapter as well. The way that he gives time to and focus on people who can do nothing for him. And in fact, that's everybody. You know, I was thinking about this the other day. That's everybody Jesus interacted with. Right. It's, it's not just the handicapped. It's not just the children. It's not just those with no social currency. It's literally any, you know, everyone. He needs nothing from anybody. Exactly. <laughs> so so the, the way that he gives himself, but especially as we, you know, think about, you know, children and women and lepers and so on, who culturally would not have the currency, so to speak, to, right. to, to earn time with, with the king, you know, it speaks to pastoral ministry. I mean, you know, it speaks to the Christian life, but how given am I to spend time with people who can do nothing for me, yeah. who, who would otherwise be overlooked? And I don't know about you, brother, but I, I resonate with this more as I get older. I know the message is you know, drawn from his welcoming of children, but I still just, if it's a besetting sin, I don't know, but wrestle with this need for validation, to be noticed, to be recognized, and to just to know that the Lord looks at me kindly and valid and is my validation and justification is so helpful. It's just chapter after chapter, the way you just bring the gospel to the surface one of the things it reminded me of was how few works today 
I don't mean to steer this in a critical way, but we just seem to be missing Jesus. I don't know if you sense this. Do you think evangelicals in our kind of tribe or subculture, do you think we're missing a focus on Christ? I just see the heart of Christ in your book, and it's odd that that feels rare to me, expanding the focus a little bit. How do you think we're doing the the church or evangelicalism or just our tribe in it? How do you think we're doing in terms of understanding, reflecting, focusing on the heart of Christ? Yeah, I think you'd probably know better than I, just based on your exposure and interactions with more broadly. My friends, I would say, are very encouraging to me that are close to me, uh, other pastors in the area that love the Lord and are always remarking upon the heart of Christ and the gospel. So I'm very grateful for them. Good. I'm very discouraged with, I mean, I, I basically have Twitter for Boston sports. I mean, I really, <laughs> the Christian scene on Twitter is, has grown progressively discouraging and dim for me. And so maybe there's some of that reflecting. It just seems, it seems awfully critical and unnecessarily harsh and devoid of love. So I, I think those things would be reflective of not having the heart of Christ and emphasized. But I, I think maybe even, like, think, Jared, about, like, articles you've written or books you've written. I mean, you've written a ton. But you know, like, if, you, if you're going to write something that's going to resonate with a lot of people, it's probably not going to be something on the heart of Christ or the beauty of Christ's love. I mean, you, you know how to, like, you know how to spot, get a spark and get people talking. Um, not that you do this, but you know what you know what's going to resonate with people, you know, on a broader scene, generally speaking. And so I, I do think it's some of, some of the appetite for people, what they want, and then kind of what's modeled. It seems like we act like act like the world in a lot of ways, and I think I do think that is discouraging. Maybe it'll change. I think there's look at uh, Dane Ortland's book, Ray Ortland's ministry. You know, guys like that. We we see that type of a. Uh, perspiration coming out of the the love of Christ and recovery of Puritans, you know, writers like Be- Joe Beakey and, you know, his systematic theologies out and people are devouring those. I mean, that's good stuff. So I'm hopeful for the future. There's probably always been seasons like this, but just maybe more broadcast. Well, it's, it's, it's why I'm grateful for your work as well, brother. And in a book like this, I have a, a concern, a fear that we've lost. And when I say we, I guess I just mean our, subculture mm-hmm. we've lost a focus on on christ we do things in the name of christ but i think in a way i hope there's a great fatigue coming <laughs> this sort of a we're going to wear ourselves out and in the wake of that you know just exhaustion there's going to be little books like he is not ashamed there's going to be a whole um, army of pastors who may have been you know, not the loudest voices over the last several years, but the most consistent and pastoral. You know, that's my hope anyway. Last question for you. I don't mean to shift gears too much. I want to ask you sort of a theological question. It's come up a few times in, in some of the conversations that I've had. The idea of God not being ashamed of us, Christ not being ashamed of us, how does that reconcile or or how do you sort of jibe that with God being grieved over our sin or the spirit being quenched, I guess is sort of a roundabout way of asking the question, is God ever mad at us? Does, is God ever disappointed in us? How do you sort of merge these ideas? I think it's a great question. I think we have to think in terms of like 
So we're talking about Christians, Christians now, obviously it's, it's clear cut with those who aren't unbelievers. So how, how does our sin affect our relationship with, with God? Does God distance himself with us? Does God get angry with us? Is God judging us? Are we in any danger of hell or being cast off? So I don't think God is going to send true believers to hell. I don't think we have any danger of losing our salvation. But what we're talking about is what is the effect of our sin upon our relationship with God? There's certainly in the Psalms, you have this communication of ideas of God being distant from his people. And it's not as if God is going anywhere, but it seems as his face is, seems to be somewhat hidden and like the closeness of the relationship. And I think that's because of sin and the, the clinging to sin and the, and the brokenness that happens as a result of it. So while our sin will never come back up in a judicial sense in the end, the Lord sees our sin in that sense and will chastise us for our sin and uh, bring trials to loosen our grip upon sin in this world. And how does that, from God's perspective, it's not that he's leaving us, but our perception of that, because of guilt, because of feeling an absence of graces, will cause us to feel as though God is angry with us, or he might be ashamed of us. So I don't think the heart of the Father is changed towards his people in any way, but I think the experience of the Christian, because we're darkened by sin, and we're feeling the guilt and conviction over sin, could feel as though God would be distant from us. And what that is, is actually grace drawing us back to him to repent of our sin and to cling. So I think the overarching promise of the gospel and the implications of him not being ashamed actually become this large tent where we're kind of hovering on the side where we need to come back to him. It's us that that, that needs to draw near to him and then he'll draw near to us in that sense. That's wonderful, brother. Thank you so much, man. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's always great to talk with you. Yeah, I appreciate you, Jared, and uh, the ministry for the church, uh, Midwestern Seminary, all that you guys do. Great stuff coming out of the school and uh, great influence on the church. We're very grateful. Thank you, brother. The book is called He Is Not Ashamed, The Staggering Love of Christ for His People. The author is Eric Raymond. It's out now from Crossway. Uh, you can pick it up wherever good books are sold. And if you enjoy the podcast, dear listener, uh, we ask you to give us a good review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And until next time. May Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.